Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I even think a lot of his supporters think and know that he's a racist. What's bewildering is, is excusing him. We see this all the time. You see them interviewed on television. You read it in the newspaper. I've talked to people. Basically, a lot of people are thinking, okay, I know this guy's a bad guy. His character is not of the highest. But they're getting something from him. So people make uh, devil's bargains. That's David Remnick, a journalist and author. He lived in Moscow for years covering the dissolution of the Soviet Union for the Washington Post. Remnick got his start at The New Yorker in 1992 and in just six years, got promoted to the top job, editor of the magazine. As they gear up for the upcoming annual New Yorker Festival, I joined Remnick at his studio in the World Trade Center. We talked about his experiences interviewing Obama in the White House, the discovery of the New Yorker, why it's pointless to block out the president's communications, even his tweets, and which news outlet is a form of political popcorn. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This fall, Stay Tuned is going back on the road. Denver, Atlanta, Minneapolis, and Detroit. Tickets available right now at cafe.com slash tour. On November 5th, we'll be in Minneapolis in the great state of Minnesota. Joining me is former marathoner, city councilman, civil rights attorney, Mayor Jacob Fry. You're not going to want to miss this rising star. In addition to Minneapolis, I'll be in Atlanta with Sally Yates, in Denver with Shannon Watts, and in Detroit with Attorney General Dana Nessel. To get tickets and details of all these upcoming live shows, head to cafe.com slash tour. That's cafe.com slash tour. Hey, Preet, this is Chris in Denver, and I will be joining you, my wife and I will be joining you in Denver uh, when you interview Shannon Watts here in a few weeks. Anyway, my question is, looking at all the trouble that Trump is in here, I was wondering, how do we, as American citizens, get you to be the prosecuting attorney uh, against uh, President Trump and his impeachment trial? Thanks a lot, Preet. Uh, love listening to you. Can't wait to see you on October 24th. Thanks. Bye. Chris from Denver. Glad you're coming to the show. It's only three weeks away. There's still a few tickets left, so people should, if you're in the area or going to be in the area, snap them up. And one more thing. We will soon be announcing an additional guest, a surprise guest, at the October 24th show in Denver. So stay tuned for that. So I appreciate the vote of confidence. Um, I'm quite busy doing a lot of things and no one has called me. But I do take the point to the extent you were suggesting it that, you know, the House committees would be well served by bringing in one or more people from the outside, some of which has already happened. We saw uh, noted criminal defense attorney Barry Burke do a very good job of questioning Corey Lewandowski at the end of a long session before the House a few weeks ago. So there are lots of great people uh, who are already on the committees. There are lots of great people that they can call upon. And I hope they will use the expertise of folks who have spent a lot of time in court and a lot of time examining difficult witnesses 
getting through the nonsense, cutting through the garbage, because I think that would be illuminating and helpful for the impeachment inquiry and also for the American public. This is Joe Halpern from New York City, longtime listener, first time caller. With the recent whistleblower event, along with all the contempt that's been happening for the House, how easy would it be to have those in contempt arrested or forcibly made to come before the House? I'm hearing lots of threats, but no action. And just curious if maybe that action just isn't really possible. Joe, thanks for your question. As you know, Ann Milgram and I discussed at great length the issues with the gathering momentum on impeachment. One thing we didn't talk about as much as we might have was this issue that you raised in your question. If someone refuses to testify or becomes obstructionist, whether it's Rudy Giuliani or someone else, what are the options for Congress? And there is an option that I've heard members of Congress discuss on television uh, and in newspapers called inherent contempt, which technically gives the Congress the right to hold an individual who's being difficult and not responding to duly issued subpoenas and requests for information or their testimony uh, allows them the right to hold them in inherent contempt and the same way that a judge, when holding someone in contempt, can enforce that contempt order by presumably causing the arrest of that person and detention until such time as they become compliant. Now, in the case of the House of Representatives, presumably that could be done by the sergeant-at-arms, who is responsible for various things, including protection of the members of the House, and would be you know, the law enforcement adjunct to the House in connection with enforcing its requests for information. So people have been talking about it. It's there historically. I don't off the top of my head remember the last time that was invoked and used in the serious way that's been described. As a theoretical matter, I think it's a worthwhile thing to be talking about, and members of Congress should consider implementing it. The problem is, as I talk to folks, that given the timetable on which they're trying to proceed with impeachment, there's really no procedure set down for how you exactly enforce through inherent contempt. It's easy to say, well, inherent contempt, you send a guy out with handcuffs and a gun and bring someone to some jail, which I don't think exists and has not been constructed, and would cause also all sorts of drama and headache and divisiveness. So, you know, I don't expect necessarily to see it. I think it's a good thing for people to be talking about. And as we go forward with this investigation and potentially other investigations, Congress has been so supine, flat on its back, and a lot of things relating to oversight. And I think lots of people have thumbed their nose at requests from Congress that I think it's something they need to revive. But I don't think, based on what I'm hearing and thinking about the pragmatic realities of it, this might disappoint some people, that they can't overnight figure out a fair and just and appropriate mechanism to all of a sudden, after having this power be dormant for so long, all of a sudden uh, exercise their inherent contempt power. I think they got to come up with some rules and some procedures and a facility, and then maybe we can see if that works. I know some people want and expect members of Congress to put cuffs on folks if they're not responsive. I think that's not going to happen just yet. Uh, as I said, Ann Milgram and I discuss all of these issues at much greater length this past week and will in future weeks for a free two-week trial to the Cafe Insider podcast. Go to cafe.com slash insider. Hi, Preet. This is John from Tucson, Arizona. You and your show are an inspiration to me. Uh, my question is this. Why are so many people, including those most notably in the media or pundit class, afraid to use the word lie or liar? And instead, they say untruth or falsehood, especially when referring to our politicians. Thanks, Preet. Hey, John from Tucson. Thanks for your question. And it's something that's been on people's minds for a long time. Although I think that the 
standard operating procedure for various news outlets has changed as the president's lying uh, accumulates and as it seems to accelerate. So I don't think it's a monolithic view. Um, I think part of the reservations that some media outlets have is that, you know, it's a pretty stark word. And it's not a word that has generally been used to describe things said by the sitting president of the United States. And people have been operating under sort of old normal rules. And I believe it's been essentially a norm on the part of the press to shy away from certain words and use less pejorative language like false statement or false claim or untruth, because that's how it's been. But now you have a president who himself violates norm after norm after norm. So I think the question is well put, and I think takes on some urgency at a time when there's so much lying going on. You know, it's an interesting thing. In court, you have people who testify and they claim to tell the truth, and sometimes they lie. Prosecutors and other folks who participate in the trial process have to be really careful about calling something a lie, which can be justified if you're careful, and calling someone a liar. So the distinction between false claim and lie is a blurry one, and I, and I take your point on that. But there is a difference, at least in a court of law, when you're, you're trying not to overly inflame a jury and a judge will call you out on it if you refer to a witness as a liar that sometimes will not fly. Uh, further to what I said a second ago, as I was walking into the studio today on Wednesday, I saw on Twitter that the president had made some statements and there were reporters uh, who were covering the statements. And one, just as, as one example, John King of CNN literally went on television right after literally went on television right after Trump made his statements from the Oval Office and said, quote, the president constantly and repeatedly lies. So some people are saying it, some people aren't. The bottom line is we all know what it means when the president repeats over and over and over again a false statement. That shows intentionality. It shows he's doing it, you know, with full knowledge and doesn't correct himself. So some of the things he says are certainly lies. And I think you're seeing more people call him out on it. My guest this week is David Remnick, a journalist, author, editor of The New Yorker. He's got his own show, The New Yorker Radio Hour, and he interviews headline guests at The New Yorker Festival, but we'll get to that. With Remnick at the helm, The New Yorker became the first magazine to win a Pulitzer Prize and a Peabody Award. Early in his career, he spent four eventful years in the late 1980s covering the fall of the Soviet Union as a Moscow correspondent. I got some interview tips from David, and we talked about what Americans can learn from Russia, whether we live in a no-attention-span era, how he won't hesitate to call Trump a racist, and why it's essential to refuse despair. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Away. Away knows that everyone has a different travel style. That's why they make their carry-on suitcases in two sizes and an array of colors, with strong yet flexible materials designed to last a lifetime. If any part of your suitcase breaks, Away's customer service team will fix or replace it ASAP. With the 100-day trial on everything Away makes, you can take it out on the road, live with it, travel with it, get lost with it. Then if you decide it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund, no ifs, ands, or asterisks. Want to see for yourself? Shop everything away at stores in New York, Austin, LA, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, and London. When you travel as much as I do, there's always a million things on your mind. Don't let luggage be one of them. I rest a little easier knowing that I've got my Away suitcase at the ready. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash preet20 and use promo code preet20 during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash preet20 and use promo code preet20 for $20 off a suitcase. Because getting away means getting more out of every trip to come. <laughs> 
Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskovitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but had trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. ZipRecruiter's technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and was impressed by how quickly great candidates applied. He used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants and focus on the most relevant. In just a few days, Dylan found his new director of coffee. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. David Remnick, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to be here. So we're just a couple of Jersey guys. <laughs> exactly. Shooting the breeze. Exactly. On a, fr- on a Friday afternoon. The great pleasure of my life is I can look out my window and I can, if I squint, I can see my hometown right across and the river. And your hometown is? Hillsdale, New Jersey. Mine is Eatontown, New Jersey. There you go. And we both know a lot about Asbury Park because we're going we're gonna to get to Bruce. Yeah. Because how can, <laughs> how can two guys like us not talk about, not talk about Bruce? Geezers from Jersey. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I, uh, will. I will. So let's start off with something that I know is on your mind before we get to some of the things going on in America and the world and trends towards peace or chaos, as mm-hmm. the case may be. You're the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker. For a while now. Great magazine, which I should also say is a disclaimer, although I don't know that it's, you should call it a disclaimer, The New Yorker is a supporter of this podcast. Oh, thank God. <laughs> No wonder you, I got on. I don't on. know if you even knew <laughs> no that. No wonder I got this on. This has nothing to do with that. But <laughs> it's quid pro quo. since I have you on, you have a festival coming up. We do, the New Yorker Festival. It's the 20th year of this. 20. I can't believe it. Look, I was available. <laughs> I, you, I, you've been on. I you've have, been there. But not in a couple of years. All right. Well, you know, life is long. <laughs> that's all right. Life is that's long. A, that's okay. So the New Yorker Festival is over Columbus Day weekend, October 11th. 11th, 12th, and 13th. I'll tell you, 20 years ago, I just had started as editor of the magazine and a woman named Rhonda Sherman who did all kinds of things for the magazine did all kinds of events came into my office I I think I was the editor for about three and a half seconds and said I have an idea what's your idea the idea is that we have this thing called the New Yorker Festival and it'd be three days and it would be reflect the magazine in all its dimensions fiction reporting cartooning everything humor current events all the rest of it and I was too inexperienced to say no, which is, you know, that the early, that early euphoric period of doing right. something new, you say yes very quickly to what seems like good ideas. Sometimes they turn out great, sometimes they turn out otherwise. This turned out to be fantastic, and I owe enormous uh, thanks to Rhonda Sherman, who's been running this thing for, for a long time. So people can come and see people talk. They can come and see people talk. This year, for example, um, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, will be in conversation with Jane Mayer. Um, who has been a guest on the show. Who, I, no doubt. And, and at the same time, you have you know, literary people like Zadie Smith will come, rock and roll people. Like, I'm going to be in conversation with Patti Smith, which I've done before. And the last time we spoke at the festival, I'm afraid to say I backed her up on guitar. She sang Because the Night, which is a Great collaboration with, with Springsteen. And I brought along my little Fender Telecaster and my amp, and I'm afraid to tell you, I was her backup musician. How'd that go? 
I would say that it went without incident. We did not rehearse. Without <laughs> incident. <laughs> we didn't rehearse. That's the kind of review that any, any rock and roll guitarist is looking for. I was so terrified. I it's, mean, like, it's, like, it's like your performance on stage and also an arrest. Oh, my God. It occurred I mean, <laughs> without like, incident. I've had lots of things happen. You know, nasty lawyers calling you up and threatening you about stories and all kinds of things can happen. This was the moment of true terror. And I so I we arranged by text that we would do this. I gave a few songs to do, that, that choices, and she chose actually the most complicated one because it has a little bridge in it which for me is complicated. And I said, can we rehearse beforehand? I don't have time. I thought we'd be able to go in and futz around with it and see how fast to play it or how loud or this, that, and the other thing. And all she, the only instruction she gave me was, play it really loud. That was it. <laughs> and she was fantastic. I'm, you know, sitting there in my stupid Brooks Brothers shirt behind her with the, my guitar. And she was Patti Smith, and she just knows how to put over a song, even with a horrible backup musician like me. I'm still tickled <laughs> by your description. You may not know this, but when I would track arrests when I was the U.S. attorney, the email that you wanted to get early in the morning, sometimes at 6.15, 6.20 in the morning, particularly if there was going to be the arrest of someone who's thought to be violent, a gang case or a mob case, the email that everything was all clear always said something like, the defendant so-and-so was taken into custody without incident. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's good that you have that parallel. <laughs> So further to the festival, you're going to be in conversation with Patti Smith and also a couple of other people, Terry Gross. Terry Gross, because Terry Gross is the interviewer's interviewer. Yes. And so I thought of you. Are you the guest's guest? It's a little bit like taking a, you know, a violin lesson from, from Yasha Heifetz or something. I want to see right. how she does it. And she's been doing this for so long. Every day. Will she do it by telephone? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> what you're referring to is that if you get interviewed by Terry Gross, you never meet her. She sits in Philadelphia, and you go to a studio. In New York, you would go to 43rd Street, where our, the New Yorker's old offices were. And it, you hear this disembodied voice. And I think, now having done this myself for a long time, both on radio and in, you know, with a pencil and paper, I think there's a certain advantage in it. Yeah. I do both. We should let listeners know that you and I are we're, actually we're in, the together, room together. in the room together. Yeah. Um, but when the person is not in the room, you can be maybe less distracted by whether they seem comfortable right. or they seem happy and just listening to the voice. And you're having, I think Terry Gross says this, and I appreciate it now that I've done this for a couple of years, you're having as the interviewer, the host, the same experience as the listener who also doesn't see us and is not in the room. So it's just a pure audio experience. Well, well the dynamics of, of a live conversation I think journalistically are the best. I, I, I don't think I'd want to do it. You know, I find that the level of information that I get as a journalist is way better if I'm in a room and nobody else is around and it's quiet and the other person has the confidence that whatever agreements you make with them will be kept. Right. I find this the business of lots of interviewing being done by email or text or the rest, and maybe this is my age, I don't trust it as much because the other person, first of all, writing is different from speaking. Right. Um, and I, I just, the level of confidence is not the same. Well, the the propinquity is different. And I want to ask about interviewing techniques since I can use this as a tutorial for myself because I'm a little bit newer to this, at least in this context. The other advantage of, of live, those few minutes before you go on air, when you're in person, you get to meet someone, they get introduced right. to your team, you can have small talk, you can mention people you have in common crack a joke, break the ice, all right. that sort of stuff. It's much more difficult, especially if you're interviewing someone remotely who you've never met before, and depending on what their line of work is, to get on the phone, everyone's ready, the engineers are ready to go. 
and you start the interview cold. That I don't like very much. Well, I imagine that your your previous career in interrogation would have. Well, <laughs> we try, I try not to. I try not to do that. Yeah. You know, we, we, I've adopted a softer approach. Well, how many? Uh, how often do you have an interview that's innately uh, hostile? Not that often. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's mean, a different. Yeah, I disagree with folks, and I can disagree right. firmly. But this is not about combat. This is about finding people out. Yeah, and and also educating the public on stuff. The best thing I ever learned about interviewing, and this had to do with print, it was I'm not sure it would work on radio or podcasting or the like. There was a great, great New Yorker writer named A.J. Liebling, who, who, was, who was really a dominant figure in, during the Second World War and the 50s and so on. He died in the mid-60s. And he did all kinds of work, city reporting. He was the greatest boxing writer who ever lived. He wrote about food. And a great man about town, a, a really outgoing person. But his interview technique was just to begin an interview, he'd sit down, and you would be the subject, and he would begin like this. Pure silence. Almost the psychoanalytic technique of of the analyst. And the other person, if it worked out well, would rush in and fill the void, as you sometimes have in a human encounter or a date or something like that. Obviously, silence on the part of the interviewer is an incredibly important technique that everyone talks about. Journalists talk about it. Bob Woodward talk about it. The best investigators, FBI agents that I worked with also, you ask a question, the person answers. Maybe it's not a fuller answer. You keep quiet. I've never heard of starting that way. Though. <laughs> All right. So since I have you, you give me some pointers already. <laughs> uh, maybe the next interview of a sitting senator or presidential candidate, I'll begin by not, not saying anything. Good luck. <laughs> Be very Good short. luck. <laughs> like Good walk luck. out the door. What advice do you have for people who are trying to get information from folks in a non-combative way? Well, you mentioned one. I think that anybody who's had the experience of listening to themselves interview somebody else always comes away feeling the same thing if they're, if they're new at it. I talk too much. I interrupted too much. I wasn't listening carefully enough to follow up well enough because I, I wanted to make the witty remark or score the point. We've all seen that take place on television or heard it in podcasts. And at the end of the day, there's a certain kind of journalism you're trying to elicit information or get to that person's humanity or what they're about. That's the goal. It's not a, for me, in in any event, it's not a performance of how smart and witty and uh, sparkling I am. Uh, What about preparation? What's the right amount of preparation and how much do you do? Well, I... If I'm going to go out on a story and talk about my thing that I'm that I've been doing for a long time, not not a short life in in radio. The key is to read and read and read and read and read before you go anywhere, and to talk to as many secondary and tertiary people as possible. Not necessarily on the record, just for your own education and edification. And then you go out into the field. Then you go out into the world. And at the point where you think you have the story, that's the point at which you're beginning. Now, this is with the great luxury of doing it at the New Yorker, where you have time to do it. Um, I know when I lived in Moscow in the late 80s and early 90s, the first year, I wasn't any good at it. I was just getting up to speed in the midst of a what turned out to be an epical revolution. But I was just getting up to speed on the city of Moscow and how people talked and what the gossip was and all the rest. So I am sure that if I went back and looked at my clips in 1988, they were infinitely inferior to what may have been in 1989, 90, 91. 
you're just getting up to speed. So you have to have the modesty of what you don't know. And in life, that is an infinite space. So one of the other people you're interviewing at the festival is Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, yeah. Mayor, Mayor Pete, who's also been a guest on the show. Right. What are you going to ask him about? Well, I think Buttigieg's media strategy is the opposite of, say, Bernie's, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is exactly the same. This is independent of their policies or ideologies. My impression is that Bernie Sanders, who does actually a relatively modest amount of interviews compared to some, is almost the same in an interview as he is on the stump. He does not, he does not ratchet it down and become conversational. <laughs> right. um, he's orating. So Beto O'Rourke is a little bit that way, too. He is. Yeah. He is. And I think it, I think it, to his detriment, too. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for him. Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders' great appeal, I think, to his supporters is the sincerity of his convictions, which have been the same for, for decades. Buttigieg is determined to talk to anybody that will talk to him. He's made this very plain, that he is going to have a strategy and a public persona in which he is as completely honest and expansive on anything you ask him. And I'm, I may be crazy, but I think what he's doing here and reality will suggest it. We'll, we'll see what happens. I, we could always be wrong and we've been wrong so many times is that he's running for next time. Clearly he's somebody that's on the radar screen, but it's very hard to get elected president after being the mayor of a town and, a, and it's a college town. It's not a typical Midwestern. Um, so that doesn't make it a real town. <laughs> well, no, but it's, it's, you're right. It's it's, but it's it, it, the town itself is. Uh, its demographics are quite different than a lot of other midwestern towns. And yet, I just don't think he's winning. I think he's preparing to. He's he's setting a national. But, but let me ask you this question. Reputation. We're taking a little bit far in advance. And this morning, the mayor of the largest city in the country is out of the race. Right, Bill De Blasio. Yeah. But Pete Buttigieg is still in the race. How do you account for that? Well, I don't think Bill. De Blasio, it's, it's very interesting, Bill de Blasio. It's, he seems, he's, I think he's achieved a fair amount as mayor, but he just never clicked with his electorate in quite the, the way he wanted to. The amount of antipathy toward him, um, and not just in conservative quarters like the New York Post or things like that, is remarkable. The, the reputation his, for not working very hard and the gym and all that stuff is really, I think it hurt him. And there's a, there's a, there's an aloofness. There's a, there's a resentment. There's a gap between him and a lot of the electorate just in New York city. Oh yeah. And, um, you know, with early education, uh, crime rates are minuscule, although I don't think that's all on Bill de Blasio. There's a lot of reasons for that, as you know, better than I do. You would think that his reputation would be a bit better. It isn't. And he just, so to think that he's going to go to Iowa and somehow connect, coming into things late and rather abruptly, and with an ideology that's already ground taken up by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, I don't know what the hell he was hoping for. Well, is there a self-awareness problem? And if so, how important is self-awareness? Um, um, and how self-aware was Barack Obama, for leading, leading question, Your Honor, but I, I'll answer it anyway. <laughs> the rules of evidence do not apply <laughs> to this show. in the podcast world. I, I think I think he does not quite radiate an awareness of his lack of connection there. I think that's fair. Yeah. You know, I should mention... And he's, and he's pissed about it. And I, I find him an interesting figure as a result. Because to me, he's not 
a decidedly bad mayor, but he, he never completely embraced the whole thing of being mayor of New York. He wasn't out and about. It's not that he, look, he followed a guy that was adored by the East Side, right? The wealthy people in this town in particular loved Mike Bloomberg. And he had Mike Bloomberg, for all of Mike Bloomberg's successes, he also was able to buy three elections. And this was rarely spoken of. And yet, so you would think that there would be a place for a more liberal Democrat to um, succeed where Bloomberg had not in terms of uh, constituencies. And it didn't work out. I don't see him getting a national stage, Bill de Blasio. Well, it hasn't gone well so far. No. Um, <laughs> no, he just didn't. He got nothing. So before I leave the topic of the festival, yeah. I, I feel that I should ask about controversy. Yeah. From last year. Sure. Because I think it's actually an important issue. Sure. And I wonder how you think about it. I'm not quite sure how I think about it and how listeners think about it. You're asking about Steve Bannon. Correct. So Steve Bannon, everyone remembers him. Yeah. The man who sometimes wears multiple shirts right. for reasons that I don't understand. <laughs> uh, you Many invited sh- him to be in conversation with you. Yeah. So not anyone else, but the editor of The New Yorker. My presumption is that your attitude towards that, as you have said before and since, was you were going to ask him a lot of tough questions. Yeah. And people can make up their own minds about his views. People freaked out. I'm going to use that term. People got very upset. I, look, I, I expected some people to freak out. What I, I, I don't know what... Did it come I, as a let, surprise let, to let, people? Let, yeah, so let what me, happened? Let me, let me say this. I would say this is not my finest hour. Neither in the rather abrupt invitation and also the rescinding of it. You, you, you have to fault me either on the first or the second. And I believe in journalism, the efficacy of journalism, the necessity of journalism... A festival is not journalism. It's some other thing, right? What a bunch of people on the staff objected to was that this guy, who is the very worst, arguably, of Donald Trump in terms of nativism, in terms of racism, in terms of cynicism, that it was very hard for them to stomach, not us doing journalism with Steve Bannon, because we've talked to him endlessly and written about him endlessly, both before and since. And no objections to that. No, none at all. Right. None None at all. I think their objection was the idea of him being part of the festival and then having an after party at which he's invited and us paying him, you know, a completely modest fee, as you know, I forget what it is, a couple hundred dollars or whatever it is. And it just caused such a storm that I decided to live to fight another day. Right or wrong, that's what I decided in the moment. Do you think there are people like him or others who, in the different context from a festival uh, by a prominent magazine but I'm talking about cable television, Fox, MSNBC, CNN, that there are certain people that cable television hosts should not have on? Cable television is presumably journalism. It's not always terrific journalism. Um, It's not an ideas festival. It's not a, it's not, you're not selling tickets. It's different. It's different. You know, it it often comes up, forget about this incident, often comes, would you interview Name your fascist leader. Right, right, right. Well, in j- journalistic context, yes. Yeah. The truth, in journalism, you should be in command of the context that you set. We certainly are in pieces that we publish in The New Yorker. We can put them in context and all the rest. I think one of the things that people fear is that somehow that the interviewee will run away with the contest and to disastrous results. Right. Rightly or wrongly, I think that's, that's the anxiety. But I'm talking about a subset of people who are potentially problematic, not because they have bad or odious views, according to some people. I mean, if you ask me, would I interview Viktor Orban in a journalistic setting? Of course. 
Of course. Who's the autocrat in, in Hungary. Yeah, but let's talk about people who are not terrible people in that regard. Sure. But who are liars and who have repeatedly uh-huh. been shown not to tell the truth. Some might say Kellyanne Conway is in that category of person. Corey Lewandowski is in that category of person. Admitted it, basically. I, I think we're talking about in a journalistic context. Yes. In a journalistic context, I think you do interview them, and then you make damn sure that you are making clear to the reader or listener what, in fact, is true and what is not true. Whether you like it or not, these people are occupying the offices they do, this, the times that we live in. You could say the same thing about the president of the United States. What are you supposed to do? Black out the president of the United States? Well, I, you know, I, some I, people I, say maybe we should pay less that, attention to the crazy stuff he I, says. I'm, I'm afraid you can't. I, I believe me. I, I we have this conversation all the time. Should we rise to the bait every time he tweets? These tweets, however untruthful, however pernicious, however whatever, they are presidential utterances of importance that are being listened to and interpreted and have consequences in Riyadh, in Tehran, in Pyongyang, and to ignore them, what, what good does that do? You just have to do good journalism about that, interpretive and, and investigative and otherwise. Can we talk about The New Yorker itself for sure. a minute? I'm going to ask you a question that I asked one of your very prominent writers who happens to be a friend and colleague of mine in various ways, Jeffrey Tubin. Sure. And I asked him at a live pocket, has anyone actually ever finished reading a New Yorker article? <laughs> you know, if I had a glass of water in my hand, I would hurl it at you. <laughs> yeah, they have. Uh, well, I know that. I have because, a more serious question. Sure. And that is, um, in this age where everything seems to be quick, quick, quick and fast editing mm-hmm. and nobody has an attention span, tweeting is the favored form of communication by a lot of people, including the president of the United States of America. And from what I understand, the New Yorker is, is very, very successful at the moment. As successful, I think, as it's ever been. What accounts for the success of that long form in this age of no attention span? Because I don't believe that it's an age of no attention span. I, look, I live in the same world you do. I, we're all on the subway and seeing everybody on their phones. Um, we all have the experience of reading something, and in the back of their minds, you're wondering, um, what's on my phone? There's no question that life is faster and more frenetic and distracted now than it was. And I think the phone and all that comes with it has, not to be too dramatic about this, has engendered a change in consciousness. The way human beings think from minute to minute is not uninfluenced by the presence of this little black square in front of me and the one that's over there in front of you. There's no question about that. But I also think that there is an absolute human hunger to know and know more deeply your world. Right now, as we sit here taping this, to use the anachronistic word, outside on the street are thousands and thousands of people demonstrating the warming of our globe. Now, to understand that, how that happened, scientifically, ecologically, politically, what it means for us, what it means for our our futures and our children's and grandchildren's futures, that is an enormously complex topic. Now, if you were reading The New Yorker, beginning in the late 80s, very soon after James Hansen made his famous Senate testimony for the really the first time talking about global warming as a problem, within a year, The New Yorker had published a very, very long article, the first real deep article on global warming by Bill McKibben called The End of Nature. And some years after, 
Elizabeth Colbert wrote a three-part series called The Climate of Man, expanding upon and deepening our knowledge of this thing that we are facing as human beings on this common earth. And there have been many, many, many such articles since, and we will continue to do that. You cannot learn about your world sufficiently, whether it's the world of foreign affairs or the cultural world, in little snippets. And when I first started going to kind of meetings and conferences and sessions about this new thing called the internet, there were things that people said that turned out to be right about the future and things that turned out to be nonsense. And one of the nonsense things was no one will read anything long on the internet. The attention spans have changed and no one's interested and it's got to be 500 words or less and on and on and on. And that turned out to be nonsense. Or maybe it's the case that things can coexist. It seems that Axios has been of very successful. And that's basically... I look at Axios every morning. I read <laughs> Mike line. Allen, all that, all that right. stuff. And, and but sometimes you want more. Well, you don't only want popcorn. Are you calling Axios popcorn? Political popcorn. <laughs> but <laughs> useful. Right. I, who doesn't like popcorn? I'm, I'm being too... too I'm, I don't mean to be pissy about anything, much less Axios. The word, the word is snitty. Or snitty or pissy or whatever. Right. Each thing has its own purpose. And the New Yorker has a, obviously has a place for millions of people. And I don't think it's decoration. You know, the old, I, believe me, to this day, I get, well, they stack up. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I get it. And nobody reads the whole New York Times either every day. But, you know, we would be a lesser republic without both of them. Right. So who's the audience? It's there for whoever wants it. John Updike once had a lovely passage in which he was describing the answer to that very question about his novels. And he said, what I, the image that I most prize is not just my sophisticated readers who went to graduate school or, or undergraduate school and are now have some sophisticated occupation or blah, blah, blah. But maybe a 15-year-old kid in a school library who reaches up and picks up my novel and it suddenly is alive to it. The idea, and it happens all the time because I see it, I hear from people, that people stumble across work in The New Yorker and then they get, it changes them in some way, that piece, that issue that story that to me is a miracle so i think it's yes if you looked at our demographics it's in a lot of cities it's probably very coastal with various urban centers in between but that's not all we harold ross who invented the magazine said new yorker is not for the little old lady in dubuque and with all due respect to harold ross i'm happy if if the little old lady in dubuque reads us and the same goes for the little kid in gary indiana you used an interesting verb just now. You said invented. Was the magazine invented? Yeah, out of whole cloth. Harold Ross, he was a Western newspaper man who had edited Stars and Stripes and kind of bounced around, itinerant guy. And he comes to Manhattan. He's yet another New Yorker who, who invents himself in New York. And he has this idea. He saw the New York Times as being, very, in those days especially, very boring and official and had the, the flavor of chewed over oatmeal. You know, not, just not very... <laughs> Not very That's enticing. worse than anything Trump has said about the Times. Exactly. And this, in the midst of the jazz age, you know, written about by Fitzgerald and the rest, he wanted something that was fun and alive and metropolitan and New York. And he invents the New Yorker in 1925. And the bare bones of it are there. The humor, cartoons, some profile pieces. The depth of the magazine didn't really occur until, I would say, the Second World War. Then we all became... 
deeper human beings as we... Oh, I see. <laughs> we trace it back to them. I think so. I think the New Yorker, some of the length began in the Second World War, greater seriousness when it came to articles that were appropriate. I guess the peak of that would be John Hersey's great article on Hiroshima, which took up the whole magazine. And that, that signaled a giant step forward for what we now think of as the New Yorker. Speaking of The New Yorker, no time like the present to say this. Support for today's show comes from The New Yorker. The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today, at the forefront of the very topics we cover here on Stay Tuned. Take John Cassidy. He covers politics and economics for The New Yorker and recently penned a column about the Ukraine whistleblower scandal. He looked at the effort to turn the story on Joe Biden and identified one of Trump's familiar tactics. Sometimes understanding what is happening today means stepping back and looking at these larger themes. That's something that David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker and today's guest on Stay Tuned, prioritizes. The writers do too, like Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow, who recently broke new allegations against Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So get 12 weeks for just $6, plus the New Yorker tote bag, weekly home delivery of the print edition, and unlimited access to newyorker.com, with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. When you go to newyorker.com slash preet and enter the code preet. You'll also be able to access the app's online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. Again, that's newyorker.com slash preet, and enter the code preet to save 50% on a 12-week subscription and get the exclusive tote. Now back to my interview with New Yorker editor, David Remnick. Can we talk about Russia? Sure. You have a lot of expertise on Russia. You lived there, as you said, for a long time. I used to. Do you still speak some Russian? I do. Can you say... There was no collusion in Russia. <laughs> I don't know that collusion, what would collusion be? No, no it's not a legal statement yeah, anyway. Yeah, as probably I've, not. I've been saying for a couple of, a couple of years. Um, what should Americans, ordinary Americans, understand not about the Russian government, but about the Russian people? Wow. I have to say, when I lived in Moscow, 1988, 89, 90, 91. This was the Crazy peak time. <laughs> of optimism. I mean, I, I can't express to you clearly enough how promising a time this was. This is a society in which a thousand years of autocracy followed by 70 years of communism was followed by this moment of real promise in which people suddenly were speaking freely, in which they were looking to the West as a political example, however disappointed they were about to be in many ways. There was enormous optimism. Now, let's say Trump loses. Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> the Trump loses in, in the coming election. Trumpism his supporters will not disappear from the face of the earth. The effect he's had on American society, whether it's in the judiciary, which will be enormous and long-lasting, whether it's in the, just in the fabric of the way we speak with each other or distrust each other, his effect will be long-lasting. And that's, that will have been four years. So autocracy and communism, it's very important to understand how much history... And historical experience can be ingrained in, in a people. That doesn't mean that those people aren't capable of progress or change or reform, but 
the tug of history, the drag of history, the uh, contradictions, uh, which we are more sophisticated about when it comes to America, whether it has to do with race or so many other issues, it's profound in Russia. Profound. And I think that's an important thing to understand. I loved living there. I, I really did. Now, as a privileged character, I was a Moscow correspondent, which I'm in the capital. I'm not, I'm not a peasant in a poor village in the middle of nowhere in Siberia or something. But I loved my time there, and I had lots of friends, and I, and I miss it. When were you last there? About two and a half years ago. What do you think the Russian people think of the American people these days? Well, it's very important to understand that 90-odd percent, if 95 percent, of all Russians get their news and their, their view of the outside world through television. Despite from from Fox News? Pretty much. They're equivalent. In other words, all Russian television stations are Fox. Putin-esque Fox. There is no variance from that. There is some variance on the internet and there's some variance in the printed page, but the predominant way of information and certainly the view of the United States and its politics comes through television. So the view of the United States is Putin's view. And Putin's view is that the United States try to take geopolitical and political advantage of Russia in its moment of defeat. It tried to exploit Russia. It's up to no good. It is trying to foment revolution in the way that you saw in Ukraine and Georgia, Tahrir Square, and all the rest. This is Putin's greatest nightmare, and it's, and it's what he wants to prevent most of all. Trump is a guy who claims to be a billionaire, owns all these properties in New York, has loved to be feted by you know, the richest people around. Yeah. And that he is in the position, politically, of being able to accuse other people of being elitists. Should we retire the word from our dialogue? Well, this is it. it, it I, I appreciate that. I think that it's a despoiled word. And look, you've got a guy who is, and I don't think I'm breaking any news here, who is a very, very wealthy guy whose reputation in business is as a grifter. The grift continues in the White House... Well, we, we, I don't need to list all the faults. I think we, we stipulate over here. We're long form. We're not that long form. We don't have time for it. I, I don't think we should be taking language instruction uh, from him, but he's clearly using that as a cudgel. He's, he is, he's a prime example of somebody who is trying to... This, this, this is out of the authoritarian handbook. You create enemies. You create others. I lived in Moscow for four years. I'm steeped in Russian history. This is my one of my passions. Stalin use the phrase enemy of the people. This is not an invention of um, Donald Trump. This is just right out of the handbook. Who's enemy of the people? The press. Who are the others? Hispanics, people of color, African-Americans. And he plays this weird move with Jews. He's a kind of philo-Semitic, anti-Semite. It, 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 this is the creation. He's a racist, yes or no? Yes, 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 yes. And you say that unhesitatingly. Some people. How much more evidence do we need? When was the first time you would have said that unhesitatingly? Before he was the president? When he, when he put his ad in the, all the New York newspapers about the kids in Central Park. I, I, look, I, I'm from here. Right. I, Donald Trump did not appear on my radar screen or your radar screen, you know, five years ago. Back when, when he was a figure for Spy Magazine and, the, and Page Six, and he was a figure in what I would call the New York jokescape, he was this kind of P.T. Barnum 
figure that unless you happen to be one of his employees in a casino or on a, on a construction site, he was kind of harmless. He was just yet right. another New York dopey guy that would appear on... Short-fingered Vulgarian. Short-fingered Vulgarian, <laughs> as Spy Magazine put it. But, you know, it ain't, it ain't funny. And it hasn't been funny for a very long time. Right. It certainly isn't funny if you're an immigrant. It's not funny if you're, well, if you're an American citizen either. Explain something to me then. You're a man who's been around the block. You're very thoughtful, non-elitist. And when I asked you the question about Trump being a racist, you used a tone that was, of course, it's obvious. But there are lots of people... Because some things are true. Fine. <laughs> he doesn't go out of the way to disprove this. I don't think Barack Obama, if asked that question, would say flatly, he might believe it, but he wouldn't say flatly Donald Trump is a racist. Lots of other people in public life wouldn't he, of say Of course it. he would. He's just got a different job than I do. So that's what I'm asking. Ask Michelle but, Obama. But is, it, but, is it, but, but is that good that there are restrictions on what some people can and should say? You have different jobs. So uh, what, uh, let me what's Barack uh, Obama's job now? That's a very, very good question. Here, but Barack Obama's self-awareness of the role he plays in American history and African-American history, and they, they are in so many ways one and the same, his self-awareness is so acute. So I was writing a book, doing the research for a book that became The Bridge, which is a biography of Obama. And in large measure, it's a book about race as much as it's about Obama's life before he becomes president. And I was interviewing him. This would have been 2008. He was just in the White House. And I asked him a question about, I forget, it was a race-related question. And a lot of things he had answered quite matter-of-factly. He talked about Malcolm X. I mean, you're sitting in the White House talking about Malcolm X. That's a weird experience <laughs> in 2008. I don't think he'd be talking about Malcolm X in the Bush White House, either Bush White House or <laughs> right. Lyndon Johnson or whatever. Malcolm in the middle, maybe. Malcolm in the middle. We got to a certain question about race, and he answered in a very kind of, like what you're suggesting, a little bit of a mealy-mouthed way, a very hesitant, Obamian, distanced way. End of interview he starts heading down out of the Oval Office toward another appointment in the Roosevelt Room or God knows where, but down, down the hall. And I'm packing up my stuff and the press secretary is, you know, trying to ease me out of the, out of the, out of the room and get me the hell out. Obama turns on his heel and he comes all the way back and he says to me, look, you got to understand, maybe about the whole Skip Gates stuff when he was handcuffed outside his own house in, in Cambridge. He says, look, you got to understand when I talk about race, it's as volatile and as risky as if I were talking about the markets. One stray word from me about the markets can send the stock market going one way or another. The same has to do with race. So I, I, I don't, I'm not, I can't possibly lecture Barack Obama, whose achievement is becoming the first African-American president for not being quite as direct as you, want, as you seem right. to want him to be. But he does come right. out and say, look, is it really so hard to denounce Nazis? I think we know what he's referring to. Of uh, course he thinks he's a racist. Obama was probably a, a bad example for all the reasons you described. But it's, it's interesting to me because when I asked you the question, you said he's a racist because it's the truth and people right. have different jobs. Right. Isn't it everyone's job to speak the truth? Putting aside the special conditions that apply to Barack Obama, why is it that, in your view... So many people who do not have the dynamic that Barack Obama uniquely has in the world. I think find waiting it so for Barack to Obama it. to save us all is, is, I'm talking is, about other people. is folly. Why are there so many other people who do not have the unique dynamic that attaches to Obama so reluctant to say President Trump is a racist? 
I even think a lot of his supporters think and know that he's a racist. What's bewildering is, is excusing him. I think a lot of his supporters, and we see this all the time, they, you, you see them interviewed on television, you read it in the newspaper, I've talked to people. Basically, a lot of people are thinking, okay, I know this guy's a bad guy. His character is not of the highest. You see it with evangelicals. It's not like they sit there and go, well, he's a great man of faith and so on and so forth. But they're getting something from him that they feel they cannot get from fill in whatever Democrat you want to fill in. So people make uh, devil's bargains. You have written recently that Donald Trump has done one service. And you're smiling, so I think you know what I'm about to read. You said, perhaps it is a form of derangement to say it, but it's entirely possible that Donald Trump, who has been such a ruinous figure on the public scene, has at least done the country an unintended service by clarifying some of our deepest flaws and looming dangers in his uniquely lurid light. What are America's deepest flaws? Well, we've been just talking about one of them. Um, I guess in the light of history, it's not surprising, and we saw it during Reconstruction and the reaction to Reconstruction, that the election of Barack Obama would produce a reaction. And part of that reaction and part of Trumpism is a fear of an exploitation of the fear of the other, which you can easily interpret as racism. So I think that's, that's one of them. That, and, and, and there are other currents in American life that have been there for many decades, if not hundreds of years, having to do with uh, xenophobia, all kinds of questions that he brings to the fore. Uglinesses, that's an ugly word, but uglinesses that, that have been present for so long are embodied in him. And he has certain talents, too. He has a real talent for turning arguments on their head, talking past his critics. He is not knocked flat. I think, uh, you know, considering ever, the... Ever. No, he's, he's, <laughs> right. he's like one of those punching bags that just keeps getting up and up and up. He plays by the Roy Cohn handbook of attack, 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 and never forgive and never apologize. And misstate everything. Yeah. Look, I, I think this is an incredibly tragic time that we're living in. What we cannot afford as journalists, as citizens, as whatever role you're thinking about is to, is to be defeatist. It, that's inexcusable. Can we take a sharp turn? Sure. Talk about music. Yeah. You know, I was at the town hall when you did one of your many great interviews, uh, and this one was a Bruce Springsteen. And that was fun. That was, uh, part of the, that was part of the New Yorker Festival. Yeah. Uh, the way that I once described it was, you know, why do you love Bruce Springsteen? And I happened to run into John Stewart, not to name drop, but I ran into him, and I told him, that the best way that I've been able to describe my affection for Bruce Springsteen was to quote John Stewart, who once said in a show years ago, do you like joy? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you like joy, yeah. go to a Bruce concert. How do you explain well, the resonance of Bruce Springsteen? You know, part of it is geographic for me. So loving Philip Roth or Bruce Springsteen came geographically as well as through other reasons. But music for me, some people mark their lives through their photo albums or, or other aspects of their lives I, my m deepest memories, associative and emotional, are via music. I, I don't remember a lot of things, but I do remember seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That's a very, very, very early memory. I remember 
buying my first record album it was called Best of 66 and it had on all kinds of corny things like um, Paul Revere and the Raiders and and then there was this guy that I had never heard before named Bob Dylan who was for me the be all and end all. Same with Aretha Franklin and recently I wrote a piece about Buddy Guy. I've been in bands. I, I listen to music all day and all night. I fall asleep listening to it. But Springsteen I first saw in 1974 as a backup band, an opening act for Chicago <laughs> at Madison Square Garden. Right. And I was, I think I was a freshman or something in high school. And I thought, who the hell is this? This is like a white guy who's kind of like James Brown mixed with soul, mixed with rock and roll. And he hated the gig. He was kind of lost in this cavernous place. He famously hated those gigs. Nobody was listening to him. The lights were half on. It was a disaster, but I loved it. And then the following year, I think Born to Run came out in 1975. He's also, so I did a long profile of him for The New Yorker when he, I think when he turned 62 or 3, I forget what it was. He's, you know, already on in years. And joy is the thing, but not just joy. There's, as he aged, his concerns aged. His battle with depression entered his songs, his sense of what it is to be an American entered his songs. He grew out of the Jersey Turnpike, you know, romance that is really for teenagers and people who are very young. And, and he's somebody, look, most of these acts don't last very long. Bands don't last very long. Or they begin to repeat themselves and play the same songs that they played when they were very young, like the Rolling Stones, are their own jukebox at this point. <laughs> right. They're yeah. like a tribute band to the Rolling Stones. He keeps making new music. Yeah, and some of it you love, some of it is may maybe you didn't love, but he's always trying to do something relatively new, like Miles Davis or any great artist. It's a rare thing. Is he the opposite of elitist? Well, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He lives, you know, a life of private planes and horses and all the rest. So let's let's not... You know, he's very self-aware in this. And at his Broadway show, he said, you know, I wear my father's clothes. His father worked in factories and so on. And I've never done an honest day's work in my life. So he's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's relatively bullshit free. Yeah. He said, I think, a line that he added, because I saw the show three times. Yeah. And someone told me that one night he said, I've never worked five days a week in my life until now. Until now. now. <laughs> until, until this Broadway <laughs> show. Until this show. When I'm like 68 or 69. Yeah. Which was, I thought, a very successful thing. And he, he's gotten funnier. I, I admire him. To a certain degree, he's the least cool rock and roll star because he's so guileless. You know, Iggy Pop, he is not. David Byrne, he is not. Um, but he's deliberate. He is who he is. Yeah. He is who he is, and I thought that his book reflected that too. It was, it was very naked. I have mentioned already that we're in the same room together. Yeah. We're not in the studio we usually use because right. we made the trek down to the New Yorker Which offices. I appreciate. And we are where? We are at One World Trade Center. We are at One World Trade Center. And my office overlooks uh, the footprints of, of the trade towers. When we got here, there's no doubt, the first few weeks, both people on the staff and people who had come visit, you'd see them looking out the window and it hit them, you know. I don't think about it anymore. It's very interesting to see the waves of tourists that come down here to stand 
either go to the the 9-11 museum or to kind of look at those fountains, those that kind of inverted fountains that uh, are in the footprint of the two towers. It's not like they seem to come down here in a spirit of mourning. Everybody's well-behaved, but it's rather... It's very hard to describe. But there is a moment where you're looking out the window and you see a plane go over the Statue of Liberty or, or the harbor, and you get a shiver. I'm not immune to that for certain. What about on the recent anniversary? Then it's more acute. Then it's more acute. I mean, I thought that the magazine performed brilliantly during that period, and people remember the cover of the 9-11 issue by Art Spiegelman, which is this black image. It was called The Shadow of the Towers, and you could you can see the, where the towers were, darker black against black. And um, I, independent of anything we did, I just remember those days of coming down here and... It changed everything. It absolutely... We were talking before about 1989 to 1991, which was the zenith of American, um, and I think to some extent, global optimism. And all that turned on its head in 2001, at least from an American perspective. So let me end then with, with a question. What's your level of optimism about America's future? Well, at the risk of being corny, it's... It's great. I think we're living in, a, in an awful political moment. And I, I think we are facing some crises, above all, the environmental crisis that we... I think we're too late to stop all of it, and we are being far too lax in, in forestalling more of it than we... We've been so belated in this way. So I, don't, I am not naive to our problems, whether it has to guns or all our foreign policy dilemmas or the radical income inequality that we face. But I have also noticed in the teeth of this Trump period that there are institutions, there are individuals, there are civil groups that have behaved with integrity, that the system, however flawed it may be, the Constitution, however flawed it may be, has not crumbled in the face of a petty autocrat. But the stakes are very high, and a continuation of this period would be, I think, objectively horrific. I say objectively because, take climate change for one example. We have a president who does not choose to believe that it exists, who tells the American people that it is Chinese hoax, all, all the other things. And meanwhile, not Rome burns, but we all do. But I refused, and I think we should all refuse, despair. Because that is an unforgivable sin. You know, that's, that's a biblical um, directive, but I think it's also a civil one. David Remnick, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In this week's Stay Tuned bonus, I talk more with David Remnick about that Steve Bannon thing, elitism, and the one thing about which Remnick agrees with Trump. To listen to the Stay Tuned bonus and the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, try out the Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks. 
Just head to cafe.com slash insider. So today I want to end the show by talking about a man by the name of Sandeep Dhaliwal, who you may have seen in the news for a tragic reason. But about four years ago, Sandeep Dhaliwal was in the news for a really great reason. You see, he was a serving police officer in the greater Houston area, and there was one obstacle to his becoming as full a public servant as he wanted to be. You see, Sandeep was a Sikh, uh, one of the newest religions in the world, and he practiced his religion faithfully and devoutly. And in that religion, of which my father is a member, you're required to wear and show certain articles of faith, including a full beard and a turban. And for a devout Sikh, you cannot remove the turban and you cannot shave your beard. But policy on the police force at the time prevented those articles of faith being shown while on patrol. So Sandeep fought to be able to practice his religion and also serve the public. So it took some time, but about four years ago in 2015, the Harris County Sheriff granted Sandeep Dhaliwal and anyone of the Sikh religion an accommodation so he could do both things. And for that, he was a trailblazer across the country. As a local civil rights leader said at the time, quote, with this policy, one of the largest sheriff's offices in the country has affirmed that a person does not have to choose between their faith and a career of service. And so Sandeep Dhaliwal continued to serve, protecting the public, while also caring for his family, for several more years, until last Friday, September 27th, at about 12.23 local time. Officer Dhaliwal was making what looked to be a routine traffic stop. The person he stopped didn't get out of the car. As Officer Dhaliwal went back to his own vehicle, the driver of the car he stopped came out of his vehicle, rushed from behind at Sandeep Dhaliwal, shot him in the head, and killed him. Officer Dhaliwal was 42 years old, father of three children. All he really wanted to do was be able to serve the public and serve his own faith. It's a heartbreaking and jarring reminder that peace officers around the country serve a great risk to themselves. Every day could be their last, as it was for Sandeep Dhaliwal. The outpouring, not just in the Houston area, but around the country, was enormous. The NFL's Houston Texans honored Officer Dhaliwal with a moment of silence before their game on Sunday. We owe him a debt of gratitude, not just for his fight for religious freedom. Officer Dhaliwal was not just a peace officer. He cared about his community in so many other ways. Among other things, he helped coordinate disaster relief after multiple hurricanes in the Houston area. And he also was dedicated to helping at-risk youth in Houston, too. For his daily and selfless service, we owe him thanks also. May he rest in peace, Sandeep Dhaliwal. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Remnick. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. You can tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the Cafe team is Carla Pirini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, David Kurlander, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. 
Stay tuned. Hey, Preet. It's Vasilia from Seattle. I was already going to call after your interview with Susan Hennessy because that kind of inspiration and grit and knowledge that you both have is so hopeful in this time of not very much hope. But then when you talked about Brenda, that brought tears to my eyes. Thank you, Preet. The end of every Stay Tuned broadcast is a moment of deep breath for me. 